We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome into another edition of the Josh Hendrickson Show here on MPW Digital. I'm Neil McCready, joined, as you might expect, by Josh Hendrickson, Chair of Economics at the University of Mississippi. The show presented to you by Twisted Tea. We'll talk to you about Twisted Tea in just a minute, but first, uh, Josh, welcome in. It's a crazy day, so a lot to talk about. Yeah, there's a lot to get to. Uh, the last time you were here, campus was just about to uh, kind of get going, starting to come to life. I would suspect that now it is fully alive uh, here in week number one at, yeah. at Ole Miss. Fully alive. <laughs> yeah, the, the, kids, uh, the kids know there's no test anytime soon. My, They have freedom. It's party time. I have an 8 a.m. class, and it's seniors that are in there, and... Uh, one of the seniors walked in five minutes late and he said, uh, I just want to fast forward to like two weeks from now when all these people stop showing up to their 8 a.m. classes so I can get here on time. <laughs> uh, all right. So I got a lot I want to get to. I, no one's going to be surprised who knows me. You know me pretty well. You probably know where I'm going right off the bat. Um. There were rumblings on different outlets last week about mask mandates coming back, about this COVID variant, BCS231 or something, I don't know, whatever, it doesn't matter. And how it, this was, the, boy, this was, this one, now this one was going to be the one, this one, whoa, it's like Omicron on steroids plus two. Um, and I kind of dismissed it. I thought, nah, we're not doing this again. We're not doing this again. I know Alex Jones came out with the video and, and, and look, Alex Jones, he's got a few things right in his past. You know, the Epstein thing, the Sandy hook thing. He's paying for that literally and figuratively. I didn't pay a lot of attention to him, but then sure enough, university in Atlanta, 14 day mask mandate. Hollywood, no surprise, mask mandate. I noticed today I was watching, uh, I had, it's on in here right now in the Clark Ford Studios. I had Pirates Cardinals on one of the TVs and they had a big rain delay. So they were doing a long Yadier Molina, Adam Wainwright tribute thing. And the commercials, one of the sponsors was the, uh, the state health people. And every actor was masked. Dancing happily but masked. And I thought, here we go again. And it's on Twitter. There's lots of rumblings. 
You hear it. I hear it. I've already gotten the concern call about we're not doing this again, right? What's this about? Why are why suddenly in late August, we taped this on August the 23rd, 2023, we're a full three and a half years removed from the pandemic. It's been over for a long time. Why now? I think I sort of live in a weird world because I have kind of like two groups of friends and like one group knows a lot about COVID and knows a lot about like what's going on and knows a lot about uh, just like different variants and all this kind of stuff. And then there's another group that just uh, that was a thing that happened a couple of years ago and they haven't thought about it since. And it's kind of bizarre because when stuff like this happens, I see like the two completely different reactions. Like I'd see the, you know, the, the one group of people that are just kind of like, Oh, Oh no, there's this uh, variant. Like hopefully lots of people don't get sick. And then, you know, my other group of friends is just kind of like completely, they, they have no idea that there have been any variants. They're just kind of like, yeah, that was, that was a thing. And now it's over and uh, I don't care about it. And I'm never going to think about it again. And so if people start bringing back some of these mandates and things like that, then I guess they're going to have to think about it again. But my perspective on this is I, I, I just really don't see any sense in which people go back. I see, you know, if there are people who are concerned and they want to wear masks and things like that, you know, that's up to you. It's a free country and that kind of thing. But like, sure. But the mandates, I, I just don't see the mandates coming back because there's still so much anger from people about the things that they were lied to about, uh, including masks, right? Masks, uh, masks didn't work and then masks worked and then masks didn't work. And, and they knew that they didn't work. And there's documentation that they knew that they didn't work and they did it anyway because it was part of the, of the virtue signaling uniform that allowed them to kind of always maintain that, hey, remember, you're a subject and we have control. Well, and that was the thing is that anybody who really thought about this critically, and maybe it has to do with, you know, I, a, a lot of people wanted to blame this on political differences. And obviously there were, there were, there were political aspects to this, um, but they were relying on like geographical differences to explain political differences. And I kind of wonder though, if it's just different experiences, like when I would talk to people the impression that people had of like what was going on in Mississippi is that like we were just doing whatever we wanted, you know, everything was open. We didn't care. We were, you know, all that kind of stuff. And like, I was telling people, you know, like my boys were going to soccer tournaments and, you know, you had to get your temperature checked and all this kind of stuff. Like there were, there were all these like precautions about these kinds of things. It's just that, it was treated much more like here are precautions you should be taking and we recommend that you take them. And when people live in a college town like Oxford and like the university has a mask mandate, but the city doesn't people on campus just are, you know, they, they just get to the point where they're like, what are we doing? Like I walk, I just, I, like, Fair I, went, question. I went to the grocery store. I didn't wear a mask you know, I went to get some lunch. I didn't wear a mask. Um, 
you know, uh, I went out last night. I didn't wear a mask, but I come to class and I have to put this on. And so you could, and so you could really see that, like, once there was that discrepancy and breakdown, people just kind of realized, like, oh wait, like this is kind of ridiculous, and this is like it, it doesn't make any, it doesn't make any sense. And so I think a lot of, you know, what happened is is depends on people's various experiences and things like that, but also a lot of the stuff just, you know, didn't, it didn't work. And you understand why people might've tried it, you know, in the, in the moment or something like that. But now we, we know that a lot of these things didn't work and people are still trying to act like they, they did work. All right. So I'm going to throw my half baked theory at you because I'm suspicious of a few things right now. Um, as, as we, sit here at 343 on Thursday, several hours before the Republican uh, presidential debate, the first one, it's somewhere in Wisconsin. Uh, Donald Trump's not there. Instead, Donald Trump, I believe, is he, is he, today's the day that he turns himself in in Atlanta, or is that tomorrow? Whatever, he, he's, he's, his latest indictment, he's got to uh, report, turn himself in, he gets booked, mugshotted, uh, but he's doing a they're very, they're very excited about the mugshot. I don't know. If they you are saw very, that, but excited very excited about the mugshot. Yeah, they're they're making sure they say that they're going to treat him just like they do anyone else at that uh, at that facility. I, I I venture to guess that will not t- come to fruition, but sure. Uh, and if I'm Trump, I want the mugshot at this point. But anyway, Trump's doing an interview with Tucker Carlson, formerly of Fox News. It's going to be on X or Twitter tonight at the exact same time as the debate, which is a giant middle finger to so many different people. Um, it, it'll, it'll get major views. So here's my theory. I think the Democrats thought that by now, with all of these indictments, that maybe Trump would have lost steam, that maybe Trump would have people would have begun to turn on him and there'd be more of a cacophony of, of noise of, hey, you need to get out. You need to get out of this. Let DeSantis get some traction. Let Ramaswamy get some traction. Let somebody get some traction. Um, and that maybe by now, Biden, people would look at it and go, you know, he's a better choice than, than, than Trump and, and all of that. But what I, what I sense is that there's some numbers, New York Times, other polls, that it's, it's either close or it's even tied in some polls. And that every time they do something to Trump, they being the justice systems collectively, his numbers kind of go up just a little bit. They tick up. They certainly don't tick down. He's running away with the Republican polls. And I wonder if this is the beginning of, hey, we can't do anything about Biden. This Hawaii thing's been a disaster. It's the latest in a series of disasters. We can't do anything with this ticket because if we do something from a, if we do something involving Harris, that the, the the optics of that are so bad, can't be overcome, could actually backfire with certain demographics. That this is the beginning of hey, let's let's get some of these things rolling, in case we have to hit the 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 big red button, and try to figure out a way to get into some shutdowns, get into some mandates, get into that kind of thing, so that there's an excuse to open up mail-in voting again so that you can go and start. I'm not, I'm not saying anything guilty here, nothing, nothing nefarious, but get people to vote who otherwise aren't going to be particularly motivated to vote. 
A lot of people voted in the last election cycle because people came and basically did the voting for them. Hey, here's the here's the ballot. Fill this out. Do this. Do this. Okay, here's your ballot. Okay, yeah. You, you don't have to get up on November the 7th or 4th or whatever and go to the polls physically and show your ID and go through the line and pull the lever, get your little sticker that says I voted and leave. You don't have to do that. It's okay. But that was all made made possible by the big bad pandemic's going to get you. You just you guys we cannot congregate in these voting spaces where everyone will die. We don't have that right as of this moment. And I wonder if this is the beginning of hey just in case we need this it worked before. Let's do it again. Is that just completely baked? By the way, the school is Morris Brown College in Atlanta. Uh, they have they have no confirmed COVID nineteen cases among students. None. Uh, they have received some reports though from other schools in the Atlanta University Center. So it's a mass mandate for fourteen days. No uh, parties or large student gatherings on campus during this time as well. So bad news for the Morris Brown football team. 14 days, two weeks to flatten the curve. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Uh, so I don't know. I've, I've heard people talk about about this a little bit, like that maybe they're they're just trying to ramp up fears to justify mail-in voting and things like that. I think it's way too, but I think it's way too early uh, for that. Like, I mean, if there, if there was actually some kind of plot to do that, like I think you would start that later. Um, I don't know. The Trump thing... I've been thinking a lot about this because we've, we've talked about this before. The Trump thing is, I think actually what's going on with Trump is that um, I hear a lot of people say this, especially on the right. They say the problem with our politics is that the parties are weak. And I disagree with this. I think that one party is very weak and I think that one party is very strong. Uh, the Democrats seem to have uh, their, they seem to have their stuff in order. They're all on the same page. They, you know, you see that from Biden being the nominee. Uh, you know, everybody just kind of simultaneously drops out and Biden is anointed as the nominee. Yeah. These are people who want to win and these are people who are organized to win. And these are people who are committed to staying on on message. These are people who are committed to uh to helping out, I mean, the student loan thing. Let's face it, the student loan thing is just political patronage. Why are the Why are the Democrats so big on the student loan thing? Well, because it's predominantly going to go to Democratic voters, and so they, you know, they they want to give they, they want the student loan forgiveness because it's a way of you know giving support to their constituents. But they're very organized in this, and they're and they're very deliberate about it, and they and they won't let these kinds of things go. They keep bringing they they keep bringing them up. They're extremely strong. The Republican Party just seems to be completely incompetent. They, they seem to have no idea what they're doing. And the reason that Trump doesn't gain traction is I think that there are a lot of people who traditionally voted Republican who have decided that the Republican Party is basically dead and they don't want to support the Republican Party. They want to support Donald Trump. And why do they want to support Donald Trump? Because Donald Trump is the guy who says the things that they want Republicans to say and they don't say them. And so he does. And so, you know, they're just like, OK, this is the guy. And if when you're running all of these people for president, all of these other people who are running for president, the, most of them are just typical Republicans. And DeSantis will occasionally, you know, venture into uh, kind of like Trumpian territory. 
But at the end of the day, like a lot of what he talks about is like traditional Republican stuff. And I think in part, this is because DeSantis has to, he has to try to attract support from Republican donors and he has to try yep. to attract, you know, support from other Republican politicians to kind of get behind him, to give him some momentum. And so you've got one guy who's just out there saying whatever he wants and, and whatever he wants actually seems to be what a lot of Republican voters want their politicians to say. And then you've got a bunch of like just standard Republicans and these people. And so I think a lot of Republican voters just look at this and they just say like, I, I don't think that they've been voting Republican because they are, they, they feel an affinity to the Republican party. I think they're voting Republican because they look at the democratic party and they're like, I don't like that. And I want to stop that. And so I'll vote for the Republican because that's my other choice. But there's this unique phenomenon that is Donald Trump and Donald Trump happens to be running as a Republican, but he's not the same as any of these other Republican candidates. And so they look at him and they're like, you know, this is the guy that says the stuff that I want, you know, the Republican Party to say, but they won't say it. And so that's why they're sort of like wedded to this guy. And and I also have another I also have like another deeper kind of thought about the, the Trump phenomenon. And that is like, I think you're going to have to bear with me on this. OK, so oh, I'm, I'm fascinated. The, the, the whole Trump thing to me is just I mean, when you and I are both long gone students, I shouldn't say students, historians will be doing deep dives into Donald Trump into these years. I mean, we are truly living history right now. So there's kind of two observations that you can note about Donald Trump. One is he seems to have a lot of support from like people who are very, very religious in particular, like, you know, Christians, but very religious. Um, and another thing that you can notice is that he seems to drive everyone insane who doesn't like him. And when I think about this, there's a, there was a public intellectual named Rene Girard. Rene Girard, uh, he, his work centered on what he called like mimetic contagion and like uh, mimetic crises. And what he meant by this is like by mimetic, it's an old Greek word. It, I guess it kind of like in English, it kind of means like imitation. But his point was, is like, if you actually go back and read a lot of like ancient myths, for example, you read a lot of these ancient myths. What's going on in these ancient myths? Well, in these ancient myths, there's something like some kind of uh, social unrest that's going on. And everybody's kind of against everybody. And all of these people are kind of, it's, it's like all against all. But in these ancient myths, essentially what happens is there is someone who becomes the target of the animosity. And it goes from being, you know, social unrest and all against all to all against one. And it's, and it's this sort of mimetic contagion. So it's like this imitation, like people, um, people see other people are so opposed to this person and they're opposed to this person. And that like reinforces how opposed that they are to this person. And, it, and, and in these ancient myths, what ends up happening is you get this all against one phenomenon. And what happens is, is in these myths, that person gets murdered or like expelled from society or, you know, or, or something. And this path, and then when that person is murdered or expelled from society, then like peace occurs. 
right? And and so one of the things that you that you see with Trump is you see this kind of like mimetic contagion. Like people just seem to get completely enraged. And, you know, like, I mean, people started calling this like Trump derangement syndrome. Like every single thing that he would do was just like the worst thing ever. Yes. And 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 you saw how ridiculous it was because there would be inst- you know, like there were times when you could actually debate whether what he was doing was bad, but there were some times when people would freak out and say like, this is the worst thing ever. And then somebody would be like, well, you know, the last like 10 presidents have all done the same thing. And then all of a sudden it was no longer the worst thing ever. Like it just became like, oh, well, we'll just move on to the next thing. And that's, and that's sort of what I mean, because if this was genuinely the worst thing ever, what somebody would have done is said, well, it was wrong that those previous 10 presidents did it too. And we need to do something about this because we never realized that this was being done until it was him. But instead, what happened is they just dropped it and moved on to the next thing. And there's this mimetic contagion here, right? So where it's just people are kind of like, it, it's it's like it's like an infection, right? It go it, people just uh, are upset. They see how other people are upset, and it become but it becomes this focus, and that focus on getting this one guy. Like if we just get this guy, like it will just bring peace. Like that's all in all of these ancient sort of myths and stories. And those ancient myths and stories are all built on like actual experiences, right? Like the, like they're, they're drawing on something that they experienced in their world. And the reason that I bring this up is that one of Gerard's biggest insights was that Christianity was a radical break from all of these other previous myths. And Gerard's biggest insight was that all of these other myths kind of emphasized that like the expulsion or like the the murdering of of like this um, this person that is supposedly causing all of these problems. That's what brings about peace, and that's what ends it. And Gerard's big point is is that Christianity completely overturns that. And his point is is that if you actually go through and you read the Bible and you read the Gospels, there is a deliberate attempt to point out innocent victims. And that um, because a lot of people who recognized these previous patterns in the myths had said, oh, Christianity is just a new version of the myth, right? They kill Jesus and then that's, you know, he's the he's the sacrifice and that that brings about the peace or whatever. And Gerard's point was, no, no, no. Like, that's not what's going on, because in the Bible, like in all of these ancient myths, the person who's expelled is bad. And like everybody agrees that they're bad, even after the fact. But with Jesus, it was it was the opposite. It was that he was that he was an innocent victim. He was a scapegoat. He was perfect. Yeah. yeah. And so the and and so I think that this kind of fits with what's going on. Is on the one side you've got this like mimetic contagion, but I think on the other side this is why you have some uh, it, why you have such strong support from like evangelicals and things like this because whether they know it or not, I think what they've internalized is they're like is they see these mechanisms in place and they see that they see Donald Trump as this scapegoat, right? He's the guy that, um, I mean, you see this even like in the memes, right? There's a meme of Donald Trump where he's like, um, they're after me, you know, like because I'm in the w- their way of getting you. Yes. Right. That's his message. It was Rudy Giuliani turned himself in, in Fulton County and defiantly basically said that. That Donald Trump is innocent. That I'm quoting Giuliani, by the way. That that you know this is this is uh, an indictment. Adi- indicting his attorneys is historic. 
that this is all about getting to basically getting after Trump's supporters and that Trump's the one that's in the way. And I think that this is what I think that this is what's going on is like it fits with this same kind of idea is that there's a lot of social unrest. People are very upset uh, about like the financial crisis and, and things like that. They're very upset about the war in Iraq. They're very upset about the war in Afghanistan. And so you have all of this conflict. You've got all this social unrest. Everybody is upset. You know, um, Obama's message was like hope and change. There was there was a lot of hope. There was not very much change. And so, again, that, you know, people are upset. And so in the midst of that social unrest, you know, if you can find this, uh, if, if you can if you can find, you know, some place to concentrate people's attention to blame for the bad things that are occurring, you know, then you can potentially have this all against one phenomenon. And then if you can just get rid of that one, then, you know, this can kind of, this can kind of ease the, um, the social tension or whatever. The problem is, is that this only works if like, if everybody is kind of involved here. And I think that the kind of split is, is like sort of, you've got these very like anti-Trump people who are kind of caught in this contagion where like everything this man has ever done is just, you know, the worst. And like, we're, we'll never, um, you know, we'll, we'll never have, you know, our, our true democracy until, you know, we get rid of this guy who tried to, you know, do all of these things to undermine it and blah, blah, blah. And, and, um, but then on the other hand, the problem is, is that all his supporters see him in the complete opposite way. And I don't think it's a coincidence that like these people happen to be like evangelical Christians, because I think that they see this phenomenon because that's, if you are someone who reads the the Bible, if you're someone who reads the gospels, like you see that message of like the scapegoats throughout the entire book, like throughout the, you know, the, the, the Bible's filled with stories of innocent victims being punished and Jesus is just one of them. Right. And so that theme is, you know, subconsciously in your mind. And I just think that like these people, um, I, I think we're just in this moment where there's just something like so much deeper going on than the, the, the basic, you know, uh, politics and, and things like that. I mean, I think that people are just kind of really caught up in, in all of this stuff and it's actually accentuating the divide instead of sort of resolving it like in these like you know ancient stories or whatever yeah i mean i'm looking at real clear politics numbers right here <clears throat> trump and the national gop is up 41 over desantis he's up another seven on top of that over ramaswamy he's up 51 points over the former vice president mike pence in iowa he he has a 26 point lead over DeSantis in New Hampshire. He's got a 31 point lead over DeSantis. I mean, these are insurmountable, you know, leads, frankly. I mean, it would take something extreme at this point for him not to get the, the, the nomination. And in the general election matchups, um, in one, uh, he's, he's Biden leads by two and another Biden leads by 5.3, and then I'm going to see where this other one is because I, I don't trust this number. Let's see. Oh, Trump versus Harris. Yeah. If you, if you put Trump versus Harris, Trump wins uh, pretty easily. I think I think um, my dog Rizzo would, would, would outperform Harris. I mean, yeah, Trump beats Harris 5, 9, 3, 3 across the board. I don't think Harris has any chance at all of being the – the, the nominee, if something were to happen to Biden, she would just finish his term. I, 
Yeah. So I guess what I'm getting at is, is as we get closer and closer to the, the, the cycles, first I'll let me start here. You're, I don't know how much of a political savant you are, but you, you study it. Is Trump making a mistake not getting on the stage? It depends by like what m- metric. So the only way in which I see him making a mistake is that I think like he actually excels in debates because everyone else on the stage is very careful about what they say, right? Like they're trying to get out the the talking points that they want to get to the audience, but they're also trying to be careful that they're not going to say something that's going to come back uh, on them. And so in a sense, I think that he's making a mistake uh, because I think that if he was there, tons of people would watch. He would probably do well because he just says whatever he wants to say. He's just completely, you know, everything's just off the cuff. And his, it's not going to lose him any support among his diehard supporters. But at the same time, I don't think it's a mistake to snub Fox News. I think that he's making a very strategic effort to try to put a thumb in the eye of Fox News because Fox News, you know, has the reputation of being like the conservative station that a lot of people the last time around were pretty supportive of Donald Trump. And now, you know, they've been very, you know, it's widely reported that, you know, they're they're now pretty anti-Trump and they don't want to promote Trump and they're yeah. trying to do things to, you know, promote some of the other candidates and things like that. And so if you're him, you know, why not put a put a thumb in their eye? Because I don't I don't think that this actually has anything to do with the debate. I think it has everything to do with the fact that it's on Fox News. I do too. I think he and that's just, why he's going to Tucker Carlson. He's who's the one person that can really make it make it burn for Fox. Well, and that's the point too is that I it, none of us know what happened with Tucker Carlson and Fox News, but that's part of the issue here, right? Is that this is the guy who's in charge of your number one show. And then like all of a sudden you just take him off the network and you don't really fire him because you don't want him to go to another network and get another job and compete with you. So, you know, you just kind of tell him to go home. Yeah. We're going to keep paying you go home. And so that's a really weird scenario. So, you know, that there's something behind the scenes where they're upset with, with Tucker and some, and, and it's hard to say because some people say it's because of, uh, you know, like the lawsuit that they had with Dominion or something like that. He had a J6 themed interview planned for the day that he was let go. And it was with the head of the Capitol Police. It has subsequently aired on uh, Carlson's Twitter page thing. Yeah. And it's interesting. And had that aired on Fox News, it would have been embraced by the right ridiculed by the left more and more and more uh it it it's it, it wasn't whether you believe it or not it was an interesting conversation so i didn't mean to interrupt i, I want to finish your thought i want to get to something that i do think that the media is there's there's something that the national media is not touching and that some of the people who dig deep on politics are and it it's one of the reasons that I'm really suspicious about the mask thing and all that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say that I think the Trump thing, skipping the debate, 
is a thumb in the eye Fox News, but I also think that it really only works because he's doing it with Tucker. Yeah. Because people who are upset at Fox News already right, are going to be more inclined to pay attention to that interview than they would to the debate. And um, I mean, and that's the thing is I'll be really surprised if anybody cares about the debate. I mean, the Republican Party is just the Republican Party. They run so many people who have absolutely no chance to be president of the United States. And it's obvious to me and it's obvious to everyone I know. You just any person on the street, you just pull them aside and you ask them, can this person be president of the United States? And they would say no. And yet these people run. They not only run, they find big donors. They find um, and, you know, they have all these campaign consultants. And basically what the Republican Party has is they have, you know, a lot of very successful uh, corrupt consultants is what they have is people who convince people to run for president so that they can make money and so that they can have the campaign pay the the other company that they own to make campaign commercials and all this stuff. It's a racket. All of the stuff that they're mad at Joe Biden about. They, yes. do, they do it in the business world. Yep. All right. Here's my point. <clears throat> it's not really a point. It's an observation. Correct. As I correct myself, this is an article in um, the messenger politics. I have no idea if it leans left, right, middle, doesn't matter. The headline is Black Voters Saved Biden in 2020. Democrats now see a red flag in slipping support. And we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The quote is from Quentin James, who controls the collective super PAC dedicated to electing black Democrats, presumably to congressional seats, governor seats, things of that nature. He says the red flag is black voters. It's not time to panic, but it's time to get to work. Then it says a Quinnipiac University national poll released last week found that Biden is receiving 73% support from black voters compared to 20% for Trump. A poll conducted for Fox News uh, showed 61% of black voters favoring Biden and again 20% favoring Trump. Um, August surveys from Emerson College, Harris X, and YouGov, The Economist, also showed similar results. That's a significant shift. And when I read the numbers, I thought, hmm, that's interesting, and then it backed it up. Exit polls out of 2020 showed that Biden won 87% of black votes in 2020 compared to 11% of votes from, from blacks. Well, 87 over 11 is a 76-point win. Even if you use the biggest number of 73 over 20 is a 53-point win. 
no matter whether you think there was foul play with the election or whatever, the one thing that's not debatable is that was a very close election electorally. Joe Biden won Georgia by a very narrow uh, margin. He won um, Arizona by a very narrow margin. He won Wisconsin by a fairly narrow margin. Michigan was close. If you change on the fringes, on the edges, if you change some numbers where Trump gains a little here and Biden loses a little there, that election could flip fast. And all the people that say, and I'm one of them, Trump can't win, the statistics start to go, I'm not so sure. As Lee Corso would say back in his prime, not so fast, my friend. If Trump gains on the margins and Biden loses on the margins, and look, yes, it's a, it's a, it's a indictment of Trump one way or the other on the election, but it's also a sitting president who's not doing so well. It's a president who just went to Hawaii and had his George W. Bush Hurricane Katrina moment. And for a lot of people, it will end up kind of being unforgivable. As you, as you stand on a stage not very far from where people's lost entire families in a, in a wildfire, you talk about your Corvette and your cat. It's the same as George W. Bush flying over New Orleans and looking down. No, you needed to get down in New Orleans. Somehow, some way, you needed to be there. And Bush never really recovered from that. And it was a second term for him. But by the time he left office, that kind of thing made people, they, they, they no longer felt the warm and fuzzies about him. Well, Biden's going to have these things working against him next fall as well. In addition to his age, in addition to potential economic issues, which I'm going to ask you about in a minute. There's a lot going on that could work against Biden. So if he just loses on the margins, if his stuff just gets frayed and Trump picks up some of those votes from people who don't care about the other stuff, they just care about their bottom line, they just care about their taxes, they care about their jobs, their kids, all that stuff. There is a scenario I'm starting to think where Trump can win. Yeah, and I think this reflects something important. Like there's a reason why the African-American vote was crucial to Joe Biden winning. It's because African-Americans vote overwhelmingly for Democrats, but they are not ideological in the way that a lot of other Democratic voters are. So they're not interested in a lot of these, the, you know, a, a lot of the culture war stuff. They're not interested in a lot of that stuff. Like that's what the polling data shows is that they tend to be much more practical about their voting patterns. And so it's not surprising that their voting patterns would be changing because if as a group they care more about, you know, practical issues and sort of like kitchen table issues, then, you know, um, all of this other stuff about, all this other like ideological stuff, all this other culture war stuff, it's not going to bring them in. It's not going to convince them that, oh yeah, this is, this is the guy. And I think that it's probably a reflection of a broader trend in the population, uh, especially among like the median voter, right? The, the, the swing voter, the swing voter doesn't care about the ideological arguments that the parties have. They, they care about what direction is the country going in? Do I feel like the, they're assessing their, uh, you know, um, trying to solve the problems that they should be solving and how are they doing at that job? And you look at Joe Biden and I, I 
don't know how anybody could think that he's doing a good job. In fact, I mean, I don't know how anybody could think he's doing a job. Like, I mean, he just is kind of a, uh, he's just kind of a guy walking around while, you know, the staff and everybody seems to be doing all the, all the legwork. But I mean, he's the guy at the end of the day, he's the guy that's going to assume have to stand on a, on a debate stage. God, you talk about TV ratings. Well, they're not going to debate, are they? They're not going to, well, I mean, next fall, Biden and Trump. Well, I mean, Trump has already hinted that he doesn't want to, that he doesn't want to do it. And so if he's the nominee, I don't, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know if they'll do it. And oh, can you, we have a lot of time between now and then. But if, also if, it's, it's one of these things though. Like, I mean, this is, a, this is, but this is a thing. Uh, who knows if Trump is, is serious about this or not, but this is one of the things that Republicans like about Trump. This is why he has such support because they saw how these debates have gone in recent years. You know, there was the famous moment in the debate between uh, Barack Obama and Mitt Romney where the where the moderator stepped in and like corrected Mitt Romney and was like, no, 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 that's actually not correct. And then it turns out that like it was correct. And so she stepped in and I don't even remember what was said now. Right. But the point was, is like she stepped in, intervened to correct him. It, that's not her job. Right. She's a moderator. She's just there to ask questions. And you're not there to fact check people on the spot about what what's going on. And the thing is, is a lot of Republicans voters like see that and they think, oh, the deck is stacked against us. And so when somebody comes along and says, I just won't even go to the debate, the deck, the deck is stacked against us. They go, yeah, that's right. It is. And then they get all fired up, you know, like, and this is why he has a, that support because he's kind of tapped into to this notion. I mean, maybe it's because he watches so much cable news. I don't know, but he seems to be very in touch with like uh, the, you know, the, the disgruntled Republican voter. It's interesting you bring that up. There were some headlines just from this week. New York Times headline, elections are bad for democracy. It's an opinion piece. But now, hear that again. The New York Times, elections are bad for democracy. Another headline, why elections are bad for democracy. I'm getting suspicious already. (laughs) A third, study, colon, Republican control of state government is bad for democracy. Did a think tank put out some talking points this week? I mean, what what happened there? That's that's. I mean, it could be a coincidence, but I'm a little suspicious. That's well, there's a there's a pattern on the left right now where, um, and th- this is how there's like a little tick, and you can you can spot the tick. I'll show you how to spot the tick. Sometimes they talk about democracy. Sometimes they talk about our democracy. And if you listen to them closely, it seems like when they say our democracy, they mean Democrats win. That's what they mean. Yeah. So this is a threat to our democracy means this is a threat to democratic victory. This is a threat to democracy is maybe a threat to democracy. But they but they like to say our democracy when what they really mean is this the electoral success of Democrats. And I, and I can't figure this out. Mm. Uh, in academic circles – you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of debate about whether you know democracy works as we as we you know would like it to, and what are the pitfalls of democracy and all these other sort of things. But like, these are also the things that are best kind of being debated, you know, in the classroom and discussed in the classroom. And you know, the, the op eds that are sort of like elections are are bad for democracy. I mean, at that point, like, I don't know how much how. Uh, much more Orwellian you can get than saying elections are bad for democracy. <laughs> elections are democracy. <laughs> yes. 
That's literally the hallmark of a a free and peaceful election and the peaceful transfer of power is what American democracy is. It's what it's what makes our country unique or did. Well, and what I mean, there there are a bunch of technocrats out there who are convinced that like if these like dumb voters would just get out of the way, we could solve all these issues. And I think that this is the completely wrong way to look at things. I mean, if you look at what tends to be the downfall of societies, like what tends to be the downfall of societies is just like this attachment to some ideology that you're convinced is like the best way of of looking at the world. I mean, like an obvious example would be like communism or something like that, right? Like this is an ideology where you're just committed to thinking that this can work despite all the evidence against it. And um, I mean, one of my favorite things is like whenever you talk about the failures of communism, somebody always says like, uh, well, it's never been done correctly. And my response to that is like, well, if we have to do it perfectly, like maybe this is not what we want to aim for. Also, like capitalism has never been done perfectly. And, it's, and, and even when it's done very imperfectly, it seems to be working out for a lot of people. But, you know, but that's the thing, though, is like communism is just an, is just like a an extreme example of this. But you, you just get these people who are convinced that they know exactly how the world works. They're, they look at the government or they look at policy or they look at the institutions in society and they say, these institutions, these policies, they're bad. Um, I know they're bad because my ideology tells me so. And they don't stop and think about like what purpose those policies and institutions have actually served in society and what problems that they solve that we now no longer even know exist because the, these policies and institutions solve those problems. Get to a couple economic things in a minute. First, I want to tell you uh, we're brought to you by Twisted Tea. Are you ready to elevate your college football game day experience? Check out Twisted Tea, your go-to game day beverage for college football fans. Twisted Tea is unlike any hard beverage you've ever had before. It's made with real brewed tea and packs a flowerful, flavorful punch, not flowerful, flavorful punch with 5% alcohol and no carbonation, delivering the perfect balance of taste and refreshment that goes down smooth for every game day occasion. No need to settle for the usual Twisted Tea turns up any occasion, especially when you're cheering for your favorite team. Whether you're tailgating in the stadium parking lot, watching at a bar, or hosting friends at home, Twisted Tea is there to elevate game day. It perfectly complements your love for college football and your passion for creating unforgettable moments. So let's toast to unforgettable game day experiences. Twisted Tea, the drink that fuels fun and celebrates your love for college football. Keep it twisted. Um, <clears throat> all right, you got the former St. Louis Fed chief, James Bullard, warning that stronger growth will require even higher rates. He says recession fears have been, quote, blown out of the water. Meanwhile, the uh, housing rates keep going up. It's harder and harder to get a home. Interest rates are at a 20-year high. Um, so my, um, the guy that I read a lot in the Wall Street Journal, Nick Timoreos, has a headline story that says why the era of historically low interest rates could be over. Uh, inflation, housing costs are set to turn a corner. There's just, there's a lot there that um, affects all of us on a, on a daily basis and should be the things that we're talking about in 2024 as we decide how the hell we're moving forward as a country. But I'm not sure that those issues even come up since we're going to apparently relitigate 2020. But at some point, those issues enter the minds of voters, I'm thinking. Yeah, so there's a lot here. So number one, the, the interest rate thing, yeah, lots of people have been saying that these uh, dramatic increases in interest rates are going to cause a recession. And, you know, every day that there's not a recession, 
you know, uh, they dance on the gra- on the uh, graves of the people who have called uh, for a recession in, in, in the future. Um, you know, that might be fun. And it, it's nice to go out there and say, ah, see, you were wrong, you know. But it, to me, this is kind of like, uh, you know, the turkey who thanks his farmer for the meal every day until the day before Thanksgiving. You know, yeah, if you're just looking at the data every day, you think things are going really well. And then one day you wake up and you find that, it, that it's not. So let's talk about the interest rates. When we think about interest rates, when interest rates go up, the interest rate on a mortgage goes up. But if you already have a mortgage, the interest rate on your mortgage does not go up. So it's re- so those higher interest rates are only affecting people who are moving. And if, you know, interest rates go from 2% to 7% on a mortgage then a lot fewer people are going to move. The only people who are going to move are people who have to move for work. So like they have to literally move out of uh, town or something like that. So in other words, it's going to take some time before anything like that would affect something like the mortgage market. But more importantly, it's also, this is also an important point that when you look at companies when companies borrow, like if a company issues bonds, that company that's issuing the bond, they issue that bond at a given interest rate. And that interest rate is whatever it is the day that they that, that they issue the bond. And so if they borrow at 2%, it doesn't matter if, you know, three years into the five-year bond, that interest rates are now, you know, 7% or something. Like they're still paying the original rate. The only person who's affected by that is like the person who's holding the bond. And so the point is, is that if you think about the effects of interest rates, the interest rates are not going to have any effect until corporations have to roll over this debt. So when the debt comes due and they have to borrow again, now they have to borrow at the current rates. And so if they were borrowing at 4% and now they're going to have to borrow at like 7 or 8%, that's going to be incredibly costly. And some of those firms might, you know, like the riskier firms might find that there's nobody to lend to them. And if you look at the data, that debt is not going to start rolling over until next year. And so if it's not going to start rolling over until next year, then, you know, potentially we're not going to see the effects of these rising interest rates until next year because that's when these these companies all start to roll over their debt. And so what will those effects be? What will things people can look for? Yeah, so I mean if if rates on corporate debt remain high, then you're going to get less uh investment. You know, you decide, "Oh, we were going to build this factory, well we're not going to build the factory now. Why borrow 8 at 8% to build the factory uh when, you know, maybe in a couple of years we can borrow at 4% again or something." Mm-hmm. Um so which affects jobs. Yeah, so uh, effectively what's going to happen is it's going to reduce investment. And so if you reduce investment, you're you know, th- this is going to end up uh, reducing production relative to what it would have been. Um, you reduce production relative to what it would have been, then you know that reduces employment relative to what it would have been. And so those higher uh, in- interest rates probably aren't going to manifest themselves in, in corporate spending uh, for probably like six more months. And then over the next like six to 18 months, then they're going to have to roll over this debt. And then we're going to find out how many of them are willing and able to roll over the debt at much higher rates. Uh, the other issue is is that you know um, credit card balances uh, are going up, and not only are credit card balances going up, but credit card delinquencies are starting to go up. So delinquencies is just anybody who 
um, has gone more than 30 days without making a payment. And these are, uh, and so far it's been a modest increase, but they are on the rise. And so that's something to keep an eye on because one of the, what's one of the reasons why, uh, people have credit card delinquencies? Well, because a lot of people's credit cards are like the prime rate plus something else. So when interest rates are rising, the prime rates going up, that means the interest rate that they pay on that credit card is going up. And so if they can't afford to pay off the, the credit card, the credit card, uh, balance is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So how, how are you going to pay that off? Well, you're either going to uh, be delinquent on the debt and you're just not going to pay it. Or what's going to happen is, is that you're going to have to cut back on your spending yep. and use the money that you would have spent to, to pay, pay down for the interest. The debt. Yeah. 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 And so, and, and so when that happens, you know, if people start collectively spending less then um, then what happens is like firms see that they're not selling a bunch of stuff. So if they're not selling a bunch of stuff, they put in less orders. They put in less orders. That means the people making the stuff make less of it. and People get laid off. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, it could be, uh, you know, it's probably not going to be until 2024 that we actually see the effects of these interest rates just because of the timing of these debt rollovers and also the fact that like people had, a lot of people had built up um, like savings from COVID, you know, when you're getting checks all the time from, from the government, you know, a lot of people just like saved that money and then they just drew down on that money to pay off any debt that they were accumulating or something like that. But eventually that money runs out and then you got to do something. And so the idea that they've dramatically raised rates and we haven't seen, you know, any problem, uh, any problems uh, just strikes me as kind of bizarre. I mean, one thing to watch out for is uh, the car market because these are things where people are typically borrowing money to buy the cars. And so if you're borrowing money to buy the cars and rates are, you know, seven or eight percent, a lot fewer people are going to borrow money to buy a car at seven or eight percent than they were when it was, you know, two or three percent or when the dealer was offering you like, you know, zero percent for three or four years or something. Yeah. And so. I think the people who are celebrating that there hasn't been a recession and like it's just kind of uh, they're, they're doing so preemptively. I mean, another thing to look at is like the yield curve is inverted, which means that short term rates are higher than long term rates. Typically, when the yield curve is inverted somewhere, uh, you know, a, a, a year to 18 months later, you end up having a recession. Why? Well, part of this is because like this is a money losing proposition for banks. Why is it a money losing proposition for banks? Well, banks uh, tend to. Um, borrow short and lend long. Okay, so if long rates are low and short rates are high, this is not good for their 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 profit margins, and so they cut back on lending. They cut back on lending. That means fewer people are getting loans. Fewer people are getting loans. Then fewer factories are getting built. Fewer, um, you know, expansions of your business are getting done. Fewer mortgages are being offered. You know, all all, all of these different things. And so, to me. There are a lot of signs out there, but the signs are all forward looking. It's all you look at them and it's sort of like, yeah, like six months from now, this will probably be a problem or a year from now, this will probably be a problem. Um, and so I think it's just way too early to celebrate and, and say that, you know, we, we did a great job. Also, I would point out like Bullard is saying, oh, yeah, they should probably raise rates again. Like, I, I don't understand why they would raise rates again. We know that monetary policy works with long and variable lags. So when you adjust monetary policy, it takes uh, it, it takes months for those effects to start manifesting in the economy. And so if you look at the data and you say, oh, well, 
inflation is still high, we should raise rates. No, no, no. You shouldn't be raising rates because the current inflation rate is still high. You can't do anything about the current inflation rate. That's already happened. We've already had that inflation. What you have to be looking at is the forecast of inflation. What do you expect inflation to be You know, uh, next month? What do you expect it to be three months from now, six months from now? That's what you need to be looking at. And in any forecasting model that you're using, you should be seeing inflation coming down because of these dramatic interest rate increases that, um, you know, work with a lag. And so if you're looking at the data, uh, you know, one month out, three months out, six months out, you see that inflation is expected to come down. And so because inflation is expected to come down, you should probably stay paused with what you're doing and wait and see if your forecast is right. And if your forecast turns out to be, you know, turns out to be wrong and inflation is higher than expected, then sure, like then it's time to start raising rates. But as long as inflation is coming down, that's just the effects of the policies that you enacted three months ago, six months ago, like finally taking hold. So you anticipate 2024 being a difficult economic year for the country? Based on the data that I see right now, yes. Yeah, you're not doing anything to shoot down my little theory in my mind that that we're trying to come up with something here, that we're planting the seeds for something. I mean, look, sitting presidents historically, when the economy is bad, they don't win. They don't win re-election when the economy's bad. They just don't. When the economy's good, they do. The country didn't care that Bill Clinton was getting a little bit of extra on the side from Monica Lewinsky. This didn't care. Why? Not because they love Bill Clinton. He was a charismatic guy. That wasn't it. The economy was great. It was like, I don't care. All right, well, I'm making money. Look at my 401k. Donald Trump was on his way to re-election. Why? Was it because, well, he's a good tweeter. tweeter. Wasn't that. The economy was good. People were looking at their 401ks going, hey, man, this, you know what? A part of me doesn't like this guy. He's kind of, kind of arrogant. He's kind of mean. But damn it, my portfolio loves this cat. Businesses were booming. Gas was a buck fifty. And then the pandemic hit. And that wiped all of that out, really. And everybody ran on, and he, you know, we got the mail in voting, all the stuff that happened. He didn't handle the pandemic well, no question. All that disappeared. Biden does have to, whether he's a puppet or not, Biden does have to run on his record at some point, even if it's against Trump. And his record, if if the, if 2024 is an economic calamity, his record is devastatingly bad. It's Jimmy Carter bad. When young people, and he's counting on young people to vote for him, and when young people say, well, you know what, I, I, it's not even realistic for me to even think about buying a house. Rent's explosive. Everything's in, incredibly expensive. And now they're starting to get laid off from the jobs because they're the easiest ones to lay off because they just got hired. There's a lot here that, that works against them. And if you're part of the, I'm being a conspiracy theorist, if you're part of the machine here, you need a distraction. I think, though, that I have a different conspiracy, and that's that I think that if things get bad, that they'll just replace him with Gavin Newsom, as I've said before. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that, yeah, I mean, no, I, I think... And that, Newsom would run on the theory of, hey, I didn't do this. Yeah, it would basically be like, look, um, 
I'm a fresh voice in the party. And, um, you know, Newsom is very good at the talking points. He's very good at, you know, being the, um, the savvy politician. There's a lot of sort of like, um, there, there's a lot of sort of like Bill Clinton-esque characteristics there, you know, of just, you know, being able to read the room and kind of, you know, uh, convince people that you're, that you're a good guy. I think that, um, and, and I think that he could get away with it because he'd be like, look, this is not my administration. You know, I've been the governor of California and like, um, but you know, I believe in X, Y, and Z, which are all the Democrat talking points. And, you know, but I just think that, you know, we, you know, in addition to those things, we got to get this economy turned around and I have a plan for that. And, you know, I, I think that would be much, e- I think that that's a, I, I think that would be a much easier sell. And I think that, um, again, like Joe Biden's biggest liability is that he is Joe Biden and that people have lived w- under the Biden presidency and they've seen what it was like. And it's not been what it was promised. You know, it was a, the, the promise was, oh, I'm going to return to normal. If normal meant like I'm not going to be tweeting all the time, then yes, like he succeeded on that goal. But if you look at like where his priorities are, uh, where his priorities have been, if you look at a lot of the agenda that they've pursued, th- th- this was not, you know, moderate Democrat becoming president like was promised. Like this is just Joe Biden doing all the things that um, some of the more radical Democrats wanted him to pursue the entire time. I mean, look at the Inflation Reduction Act. The Inflation Reduction Act is not has nothing to do with inflation. It was just the Build Back Better plan or whatever, and they just changed the name because inflation was high. Yeah, took some stuff out of it and called, <laughs> right. called it that. By the way, in case you're wondering, a uh, <clears throat> fairly recent Yahoo News YouGov survey, I don't know how reliable that is or isn't, beats me showed uh, Newsom beating Trump 40 to 39 in a um, hypothetical hypothetical vote. Uh, this, however, there's a, a large number of, of uh, uncertain, obviously, in that. So there would be quite the battle for the middle ground, as there always is. A uh, Let's see. A Newsom beats DeSantis um, 39 to 36. Um yeah, I don't know. There's a lot there. Shows Biden beating Trump 42 to 40 and DeSantis 41 to 37. Had Harris tied with Trump. Um, anyway. All right, we'll end with this. Something totally different. Some, something local. I saw this and I thought of you. Uh, this is from uh, the Ole Miss website. Hope this doesn't get you in trouble me asking about this. The uh, Mississippi Institutions of Higher Learning has approved the creation of a new National Center for Narrative Intelligence at the University of Mississippi, the first of its kind in the country. Narrative Intelligence, a human and artificial intelligence-driven process that analyzes large amounts of data to derive meaning, trends, and outcomes, is particularly useful in identifying the patterns and flow of misinformation and disinformation. It has broad professional applications in various fields, including journalism, sorry, healthcare, national security, and public policy. Information is more prolific and accessible than any other time in our history, says Noel Wilkin, provost and executive vice chancellor for academic affairs. This is largely because anyone with a smartphone, tablet, or computer and social media account can create, disseminate, and propagate information. This makes knowing the source and veracity of information much more difficult. 
This center will make a valuable contribution to society as it develops and uses tools and strategies to ascertain the sources and veracity of information. This work is critical to our ability to make decisions and develop our opinions based on truth, not just a social media post that received the most forwards or likes. I'm going to guess you kind of have some thoughts here. I have a pretty big one about like, I don't, I still, even though you told me what narrative intelligence is, I'm, I'm not sure I'm buying that as a real thing. Um, I wonder about students who spend a lot of time studying narrative intelligence. I wonder where the hell are you going to get a job? Um, but I'll, I'll stop there. You know a lot more about the academic machinations of, of universities than I do. This, this, this feels like, this feels like they're setting up a program to do a lot of research so that they can get some grants that said, Hey, we got a lot. We did a lot of research or we're doing a lot of research. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and guess that this is grant chasing, but I want to give some background here and the background is probably what will get me in trouble, but I don't really care. I received an email about this proposed center um, as a department chair. We are at, we are, asked our opinion on these things, um, regardless of whether it affects our department or not. That's just how it works. I got an email about this and it said, oh, hey, um, the journalism school and the Department of Criminal Justice, I'll come back to that in a minute, um, have proposed the creation of this center. Here are the details about what the center is and what it would do. We're soliciting feedback on this proposed center. If you have any feedback that you would like to provide, you need to provide it to us by 5 p.m. today. Oh. <laughs> so I received this email. The email was sent, I think, at 11.20. I have the email. I can check. I believe the email was sent at 11.20. So that means that I had five hours and 40 minutes. And that's if I was sitting at the computer on my email, like at waiting, very right, moment, waiting right. for this to arrive. Right. So the, which, which you weren't. Right. So the vast majority of people saw this, you know, an hour later, several hours later. Many people probably saw it for the first time after 5 p.m. <laughs> And so to me, that was the first kind of uh, red flag here, because when that sort of thing happens, what that seems to suggest is that people are just trying to kind of squeeze something through. They're trying to minimize the amount of uh, complaining or, or anything that that happens that would that would hold up the, the process. So I have a, a huge problem with the process itself because the process itself was not a process like I mean, I guess they, they technically checked all the boxes on their form. But um, I don't think that they checked all the boxes in good faith. That's problem number one. Uh, problem number two is this is a joint center between the School of Journalism and the Department of Criminal Justice. And so criminal justice. Yes. And okay. so immediately what came to my mind is, is like, what is this? Like, how, what is this? Like the Twitter files? Like, are we like, so are we training the people in criminal justice to work with uh, journalists to censor media or like, what is what, like, what, like what is the relationship here? And like, didn't people just get in a lot of trouble for that, that sort of thing? So I never really understood that connection. And again, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't have firsthand knowledge. So I, I have no idea what the role of the criminal justice department is in this. All I know is that the chair is like, was um, the, the, the chair and the dean of the 
journalism school were the people who were on there as the people who would be, you know, sort of overseeing it. Um, so that's an issue. Um, third, I have a huge problem with this like disinformation, misinformation stuff that, that is I, I do too. all the rage Yes, because this is not about disinformation or misinformation. In most cases, this is about policing a narrative. Yes. This is about this. There is an accepted version of this story and we don't want you to tell another version of this story. I mean, this is our truth this is we've determined that this is the truth and even if there's evidence to the contrary that's misinformation disinformation we're going to filter that out we're going to block that we're going to censor that and look that that's going today if elon musk doesn't go buy x or whatever i mean i know people debate what he's done or hasn't done or how well he's done or how well he hasn't done but the truth is it's a lot of voices at least were allowed to return to that space the hunter biden laptop story was russian misinformation According to the media and all of these intelligence experts. Yeah. Uh, however, we now know that at the time he was already under investigation for this laptop. So anybody who had intelligence connections would have known that this was not. Yeah. The, the federal government, co- this is known. The federal co- government coordinated with Facebook and Twitter and these other outlets to stifle that story and then to come up with, hey, when it gets published not only banned the New York Post from Twitter, they banned the New York Post from Twitter. But they also said, hey, it's, it's Russian informa- disinformation and we'll get 50 people from the security world to sign off on that. And here we are some three and a half years later and the media... Outside of the New York Times with the passing, passing acknowledgement of it, the, the mainstream media just has ignored that story, continue to ignore that story. But we, but we also now know that it wasn't misinformation and we know, and also we know like, so the idea that COVID came from the Wuhan uh, virology lab where they were studying uh, coronavirus, uh, they, that was dismissed as misinformation. Now, uh, it's, you know, one of the leading theories of where the virus came from, but back then it was misinformation. And so the problem is, is that, you know, one of my concerns here is, is that the people who are out there saying that they study misinformation or disinformation, they don't have a good track record. And so it's kind of hard to justify that this is some kind of science that you're doing something scientific to determine what's misinformation and disinformation it just actually seems like controlling particular narratives or not letting particular stories um you know uh get traction or or, or something like that it, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with misinformation or disinformation so so there's that point the fourth point that i would make about this is that the university of mississippi is a public institution And I do not think that it's a good idea for a public institution to have a center that is dedicated to combating misinformation and disinformation, because if you're combating misinformation and disinformation, by definition, you are limiting the speech of other people by definition, right? You're, you're saying this form of speech is wrong. This is misinformation. This is disinformation. 100%. And you, you should not be able to say it. 
And so what happens if this center starts working with Facebook? Uh, what happens with uh, this center if they start working with, with Twitter? What happens to this center if they're working with any social media site? And they're working with them to create tools that, that limit people's speech. As a state-run institution, I think that this is going to potentially cause problems because they're going to come along and they're going to say, well, wait a second, you are a state-run institution and you're helping stifle the speech of these people on these platforms. And, um, you know, that's an infringement, you know, um, you know, if you're working in conjunction, you know, and if they're working in conjunction with the, with, um, you know, they're, they're already a public institution and they're, they're probably going to be working in conjunction with federal agencies and, um, getting federal government grants to do this work. And so, you can make a case that, you know, you're violating people's First Amendment rights by by doing these sorts of things. And so I'm not a legal expert, so I have no idea how well those cases would do. I have no idea whether they would even be brought. But the point is, is that these are things that should be discussed. And the idea that this is, um, you know, and the way that this was handled, what what it's described as being, um, it just, it, it doesn't make any, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I don't really understand, you know, what's behind it. You'll just get some bad glances. No one will say anything to you. They'll just look at you funny. I already, I already get those. I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, at least you have tenure. Uh, you know. Oh, he's gonna. God, I'll stop. I'll stop. Um, all right, we'll stop there. Appreciate uh, your your time. This has been a, a wildly popular show with people. Um, if anybody's interested in sponsoring the show, reach out. We can make something work. If you don't have a rate card? We'll just make something work. Uh, it's Neil McCready at gmail.com or you can hit me up on um, X or any of those things. My DMs are open. So hit me and I'll hopefully see it and holler back at you. Uh, Josh will be back in two weeks. When we get back the next time, um, everybody will have played at least one football game. We'll be getting ready for week number two in college football. How about that? It, th- then it goes fast. The fall, I'm convinced that the clock goes faster in the fall. Then it goes at any other time of the year. You look up in the fall and it's like, oh, shit, it's Halloween. And then you look up and it's like, oh, it's Thanksgiving. And then it's New Year's. It's unbelievable. Boom, boom, boom. Then January and February, things slow down precipitously. Unless you like the NBA, which it's okay. All right, we'll stop there. Uh, Josh, thanks so much for the time. Appreciate it. Fun as always. Uh, That's Josh Hendrickson. That's uh, another edition in the book. So the Josh Hendrickson Show will be back in two weeks here on MPW Digital with another one. Appreciate it. If you have anything you want us to uh, attack or talk about, send it our way on social media or whatnot. You can get uh, to Josh at Rebel Econ Prof. That's Rebel, E-C-O-N-P-R-O-F at Twitter. Uh, Until next time, take care. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.